This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good afternoon. Welcome to Health and Living with me, T. Shaoik. On the show today, we are discussing prostate cancer. Um, it is a silent disease because it can develop without any symptoms. And in fact, almost 70% of prostate cancer cases in Malaysia are only diagnosed in the late stages. So today we want to discuss um, what happens um, you know, after men receive a prostate cancer diagnosis, what treatment options do they have, how far have we come? in treating um, the cancer itself, but also in supporting men with their mental health and emotional issues following the diagnosis and throughout the treatment journey. So joining me in the studio today, consultant urologist Dr. Peter Ng from Subang Jaya Medical Centre, as well as Kelly Lai, registered counsellor, also from Subang Jaya Medical Centre. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Peter and Kelly. How are both of you today? Thank you very much. We're real fine. Thank you very much. I'm fine. So call us with your questions. I think this is a great um, opportunity to get two different perspectives. One is the clinical, of course, from uh, urologist Dr. Peter Ng, if you have questions. Like, um, I know a lot of people get very confused about PSA tests, for instance, if you've gone for some sort of screening and you want to know what you should do or whether you do need PSA screening or any prostate cancer screening. Or if you want to find out from Kelly um, how to support a family member who's been diagnosed perhaps call us at 03-7733-2900 or WhatsApp our U-Mobile number with a text message or voice note 018-789-8899 or you can also tweet us at BFM Radio of course. Dr. Peter I understand that prostate cancer is the third most common cancer among men in Malaysia ranking uh, qu- quite high obviously. Now what do we know about the risk of men in Malaysia getting prostate cancer especially as we are becoming an aging society? Well the two things that uh, weigh upon the uh, incidence of prostate cancer one is our changing habits in terms of food we're, we're moving towards a western style society where we actually have more western type foods like hamburgers and meats uh, and the other thing, we also have an aging population. So uh, the trouble is with our local statistics is that uh, I think it's being underreported, okay, compared to uh, many more sophisticated societies. So our current um, prevalence is about 7.7 men uh, per 100,000. Uh, if you actually look at Singapore, there are about 30 per 100,000. And the United States is like 120 per 100,000. I think ours is grossly... Um, underestimated. There was a study by Jasmine Lee published a few years ago. If you look in the internet, that's the only study that's out. And she looked at about nine centres, uh, urology centres, but they're all uh, government hospitals. And you just cull 1,800 people from that, uh, that doesn't represent the whole country. Mm. A lot of people go to private sector and the study was never done in the private sector. So I suspect it's underreported, mm. uh, and there's a lot more there, mm. uh, which is then shown by the fact that you've got more than half of these patients presenting uh, in the late stage. And that's actually shocking because if you look at the United States, only one in 20 present with late stage. 
Malaysia more than half present at a late stage. So we are a long way to go. Mm. And if we're saying that what the numbers we know of are only the tip of the iceberg, yeah. um, does that mean that the rest, uh, if we probably are on par with Singapore at 30 per 100,000, mm. the rest, are they getting treatment? They're just simply not entering the numbers. But what happened, what's happening is that they're coming forward probably when they have symptoms. Mm. And by the time that happens, we're not going to be able to catch them at a stage where we could offer them treatment that would realistically provide a cure. Mm. That is the main issue. If we improve the detection, then we are going to improve the survival. And it matters. Um, let me quote you a study called the PROTECT study, uh, one of the longest-running uh, uh, study in the United Kingdom. Now, they actually looked at 83,000 men and screened and found out about 2,900 of them had cancer, half of which were entered into a trial where there were three arms in the trial. One, uh, just uh, surveillance because they were low-grade cancers. One, radiotherapy. One, surgery. At the end of, and these were localized cancers, early cancers. Not end, spread. No, not yet spread. At the end, there was a publication after 15 years of follow-up, survival rate was 97%. Well, you don't get better than 97% cancer-specific survival rate. So it makes a difference, mm. okay? Mm. Um, another piece of data is that uh, th there's a criticism towards PSA testing. It's not very uh, specific. It may be oversensitive. But if you look at the experience of the United States, since they started PSA testing, their mortality death rates for prostate cancer has dropped by 37%. You can't you can't fudge figures like that. So people have died less. All right? mm. So that makes a difference. And then in 2012, the U.S. Uh, Preventative Task Force actually reversed their decision and said, look, uh, we don't need to test PSA. And what happens after that? The 5% rise in advanced stage cancer every year. And now mm. they reverse themselves again and say, you should test PSA. All right, so we actually have proof that if you can actually detect it earlier, we can save lives. Mm. We'll get to PSA yep. um, screening and what those numbers, yep. you know, what do you mean when you say something is yep. oversensitive in a short while as well. But, um, you know, if, uh, if you say that early detection, uh, you can improve survival by such a significant um, percentage, then what's happening to those men in that 68.6% in our population who are coming in late stages? Well, well, the good news is that prostate cancer uh, is not that, is compared to breast cancer or brain cancer, uh, it's not that lethal. Um, if you, because why? Because most of prostate cancer occurs in elderly people. And uh, out of seven people with prostate cancer, only one will die because of it. A painful, horrible death but only one. The other six will probably die of a heart attack. So that makes um, the, the approach to prostate cancer a little bit, we've uh, got to be a bit circumspect. So we're looking to make a difference in people who are young. We're looking at someone who's 50 to about 69 years of age, who's still got about 10 more years in mileage in the car, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you don't want to go and fix people who are like 78 years old because, you know, their time's about run out. So, and then you probably cause more suffering in terms of the treatment rather than to save lives.
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, hopefully we can also avert that um, uh, heart attack, which you know. Well, that's a different specialty, yeah, not my right. problem. <laughs> I'll talk for another day. <laughs> uh, but Kelly, you know, as Doctor Peter said, we've got two things kind of working against us in a sense. Uh, aging society, uh, a lot of people are living longer, longer life expectancy, so cancer will increase. Um, our lifestyles um, are not doing us a favor, or we are not doing ourselves any favors. I suppose so with that in mind we know we know the kind of lives we lead we know the kind of um, environment we're living in but do you think that men really do think about their risk of cancer increasing i see that kind of uh, uh there's two different people uh, uh, i would say that's uh i put it into the two category like, like one group of men is like proactive in their health that means they will do some medical checkup yearly uh, like what Dr. Peter said PSA they will buy the package to follow up then they will have uh, earlier detections but I feel like the other group of people that they think that they are old or they are into aging they ignore their health or they are busy with their life they don't want to know any bad news about their health. That's why they ignore it. Mm, And uh, Dr. Peter, I guess in in many situations, whether you choose to ignore something or not, it is symptoms that give you this first nudge to do something. But prostate cancer um, often won't have symptoms until it's the later stages. Um, What kind of symptoms would appear then? And actually, why is it such an anomaly that, that there are just simply no symptoms that would present in terms of um, urinary changes or anything like that? Well, the symptoms are usually because the prostate gland has enlarged to such an extent that it compresses on the outlet uh, of the bladder. So when you pee, it's kind of harder to pee, slower to pee. Uh, it takes quite a bit of prostate enlargement before that actually happens. Oh. And you've got various other diseases. The other disease is benign prostate uh, enlargement, which happens to more than 40% of men above the age of 64. Oh. So you could be nine disease. And that's actually confused with aging. So all the friends will sit at the coffee shop and they'll all chit-chat and say, oh, you wake up at night, so do I. So it must be normal, right? Because we're all pushing 80, right? So... It is because of that rhetoric at the coffee shop that people conclude wrongly that prostate disease or waking up at night is quite normal part of a landscape for an elderly gentleman. And that's where the opportunity to catch cancer is missed. Mm, But um, presumably some of them may feel uh, that they are causing too much of a fuss just to go and see a doctor because they wake up a few times a night. Um, How how are you going to change that mindset? Well, I think changing that mindset is basically um, talking to them about the quality of life. So they don't often realize that the trip, the most dangerous trip in their lives at the age of 75 is not the trip to the 7-Eleven, it's a trip to the toilet. Meaning? Because it's dark, you're groggy, and it's wet. And you can see men who look a fine specimen. I've seen so many men who are like 85 years old, walking, looking perfectly pristine. But the moment they fall down, they get a fracture of the hip. They stay in hospital a couple of months. They get a bed sore. They get pneumonia. They get urinary retention, UTI. And then they will die. 
So the problem with the difference between elderly gentlemen and young people is that the young people have a regenerative capacity to repair any damage. Elderly people don't. They simply fall apart like a beautiful Ming vase. So therefore, don't let the Ming vase hit the ground. So what I tell my patients to do is that every single one of them, you should buy a urinal. Cost you 20 bucks. Mm-hmm. A urinal is a little bottle with a handle. You get up at night, have a bit of a whiz, put it down, you go back to sleep, no fuss. You see me? Men will not wear diapers, I can tell you that. You, you try peeing in a diaper, I think it's almost impossible. All right? But get a urinal and uh, you can actually save your life. If you just message and go out to every Malaysian to buy a urinal, Okay, I don't have shares in any urinal uh, uh, company, but it would save lives. People won't have to fall. <laughs> but before that point, um, if urinary changes, um, difficulty peeing or frequency and all yep. that, are some uh, red flags that you yep. want men to be thinking about, yep. then at what point do they come and see you well, or GP? I, I believe that every single man above the age of 50 should go and see a doctor and have a PSA test because the PSA test is the only test at the present moment, cheap enough mm-hmm. for you to get that will give you some idea, however imperfect it is, that you might have prostate cancer. Mm. We will go for a quick break so, on that teasing note and come back to ask Dr. Peter Ng what exactly is the deal with PSA screening that's made it so controversial then? Mm. And then after that, if prostate cancer is diagnosed, what are the treatment options and what kind of mental and emotional support would help men and their families go through this journey? Call us with your questions 03-7733-2900 or WhatsApp our U-Mobile number 018-789-8899 or of course you can also tweet us at BFM Radio Consultant urologist Dr. Peter Ng and registered counsellor Kelly Lai, both from Subang Jaya Medical Centre, in the studio with me today. We'll be right back. Health and Living, BFM 89.9. Good afternoon. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Xiao Ik. And my guests in the studio with me today, consultant urologist Dr. Peter Ng and registered counsellor Kelly Lai from Subang Jaya Medical Centre. We are discussing prostate cancer, the importance of early uh, uh, early identification and diagnosis, especially um, if you can go for screening tests and what would treatment and support for men look like after that. Call us with your questions 03-7733-2900 WhatsApp us your text messages or voice notes on 018-789-8899 or tweet us at BFM Radio. So Dr. Peter, your recommendation is above age 50, all men should go for PSA screening. Why has it been so controversial? You give some idea to it just now that it's been back and forth. Um, but what exactly does the PSA tell men and doctors like you? Well, the PSA is called prostate-specific antigen. It's the only cheap test that you could actually do to give you some idea that whether you've got prostate cancer at all. But it's not very specific. You could get it raised because of infection or you could get it raised because of just benign prostate enlargement. So because of those other conditions, it makes it less specific. So you could be over-diagnosing people. So therefore, it is not. that's why it's got so, so, so much controversy Okay, but the thing is that there's, we've improved in our knowledge of uh, PSA. We now know, let's say, for example, if you're a man and uh, let's say your PSA is less than one, 
the chance of you dying of prostate cancer at the age of 85 is now 0.2%. So that is a prognostic bit of information that you could take home. We actually don't have to have a PSA every year. You could have it once every four years or five years because we have this new piece of data that's come out. You see what I mean? And we also know that given all its inadequacies, there are other tests that we could do. Let's say so PSA becomes a triggering point whereby we say to the gentleman, oh, your PSA is of a certain level. We can do something like an MRI. So now we actually have multiparametric MRIs which will be able to diagnose 90% of cancers. Well, in the past, you walk through the doctor's office and your PSA above 2.5 in the United States, you get biopsied, which is far too many biopsies. But today, with other instruments, we can actually fine-tune it. We can save a third of the men from an unnecessary biopsy. Mm. So that's where PSA comes in. And PSA testing has been shown to reduce death rates. Mm. Uh, what are other fears that men have about getting tested for prostate cancer? Yeah, well, the, the main thing that men will express to us is that they fear the almighty finger. But as BFM said, we are brave Malaysians, aren't we? That's right. <laughs> so we shouldn't fear a tiny little finger. I mean, I want to say we are brave female Malaysians. Oh, women, yeah. women have no problem. Yes, yes. <laughs> women go through far worse than finger. Uh, it's us men. Unfortunately, we, we talk a big game, but we're actually worse. All right. So it's the one-time deal. You come and see a doctor. And to be honest with you, most doctors don't even want to put the finger there. Is it um, required? Uh, I, I presume this is the after passing the first gate of a raised PSA test. No. In medical school, we were taught that you've got to finger all the men. But if you, if you ask the average general practitioners, and I run a lot of GP training forums, and you will see that 80 to 90% of GPs don't put the finger where the sun don't shine. Okay. so It's a fact. Okay. Because so they don't not- like to do it. So it's not routine practice anymore? No, it should be. I oh. still believe in old school it should be, right. but people don't. What, what you should do and what you do is two different things. Okay, all right. Well, should men be so afraid of it? No, it's a tiny little finger. <laughs> there you go. Some people enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> From the horse's mouth. Um, and, and really, we're talking about um, you know, being able to save lives here. Mm. Um, but Kelly, um, mm. you know, Dr. Peter... Uh, and I were joking about, you know, what women can go through and all that. But really, um, honestly, when it comes to understanding men and mm. the psyche of men, and like you said earlier, some um, maybe want to deny, um, uh, sweep things under the carpet or just turn a blind eye to what could potentially be bad news. Mm. Um, what have you come to observe about the male psyche and what would help them? What would prompt them to go and see a doctor? Okay, for the men, I think having a prostate problem is some things are very uh, showing their weaknesses so they don't want to talk about that. I think it's good to uh, if they're comfortable they can always share with somebody they're close to uh, if they are not comfortable to share with the wife or the family member, they can share with their close friends, or they can uh, find out, uh, go to the hospital to find out more information about this prostate, because all this can reduce their anxiety, their worries, and then get speak to the doctors to find out what are the uh, optional treatments. They all can uh, suggest others uh, all the adequate mm. information and treatments. And then 
uh, we all healthcare can connect them to a survivors if they are comfortable because survivors is the right persons. They have gone through all the treatments, the side effects, all this. They can share a lot of things that they can get emotional supports. And then later, they will feel comfortable with one-to-one. They can join a big group, a support group to get uh, emotional supports. Then bring her around with other uh, survivors. Mm. Then they're more confident and facing the public, uh, other friends to talk about their weaknesses. Dr. Peter, have you seen behaviours changing among men? I think men are more likely to come forward for this. I, re- I remember I was involved in a lot of work with erectile dysfunction. There was a time two decades ago where people, men will never talk to you about erectile dysfunction. But because of Viagra and Pfizer putting out all these uh, advertisements that it's, it is you know, very common, men don't mind coming and talking about these things. Mm. It's, it's the male machismo. Mm. If we are strong and invulnerable, and if you were to complain of urinary symptoms, it will bring you back to the infantile stage where you wet your pants. My God, do you you wet your pants? That's a big thing for a man. For him to admit, it must be really bad. So I think that the male machismo uh, feeds into this denial behavior. Mm, Yeah. So um, what else do you think, on top of what Kelly has suggested, uh, can help men, can can society do to help men overcome that? Yeah, well, I think it's public education, just like the BFM. And uh, you tell elderly men that more than half of you are going to have these urinary symptoms. Some of that will be due to something more sinister. Most of that will be due to simply swelling of your prostate associated with an age. A disease is a disease called benign prostate enlargement. It is not normal for a man to have an enlarged prostate gland. I know plenty of 80-year-olds have got normal prostates. Mm. It is a disease. It's not a natural part of aging. Mm. If you get that part of the uh, out of the way, you could be... Tr- and most men, 90% will be treated with medications and that will improve the quality of their lives. We have a question from a listener here. I have had three biopsies within two years. All are negative despite my PSA averaging 12. What is my risk of contracting prostate cancer? Well, if you've got a PSA above 12, then there is a significant risk, uh, technically, of 50% of having prostate cancer. My question to the listener is that when he's had his biopsy, did he have an MRI? It's a multi-parametric MRI, which will then stratify your risk into a a score of 1 to 5. And each number will correlate with particular risks. And the MRI produces a very accurate image of the prostate gland. And you can use that image and fuse that with software with a real-time ultrasound image. And so that will actually get a better biopsy uh, result. Uh, the, the, the multi-parametric fusion biopsy, uh, transperineal, will give you a pickup rate of about 86% compared to the normal one, which is transrectal, which is 73%. So we are improving. Mm. Three biopsies is a lot. Yes, and yeah. they're probably transrectal. Mm. So, uh, but if you've had three uh, good biopsies and MRI and all that, then then it probably is not due to any cancer. All right. Okay, um, Kelly. Mm. What um, you know? We already have questions which sort of allude to that and hint to that um, anxiety, right? Mm. Could it be cancer? So when there actually is a diagnosis of prostate cancer, how uh, do patients usually react? What kind of emotional sort of journey will they be going through? 
Okay, usually cancer patients, when they have got the news about their cancer, I think cancer equal to death is a very common statement that all the patients, cancer patients have faced it. I think that the first thing they will get denied, then they will ask for retest or second opinions, or they will get angry because they have a freedom of their life, they enjoy their life, especially old people, they start to retire, they have a retirement plan. But all these news have crashed their all plans. Or they will go to into this depressed because they lost their freedom to do whatever things. Or some of them, they, they will accept it and move on with the treatments. Mm. So how would you guide somebody, especially if they still need that sort of time to be able to get to the treatment stage, if they're still going through all that um, denial and anger and all of that? So I will sit down with them, listen to them, see what are the main issues they have that want to speak about uh, with me. Then we will try to help each other and see what are the things the family can come in and help him instead of he walking this journey alone. Mm-hmm. Dr. Peter, what are men's concerns when you tell them that they have this cancer uh, and you know certain treatments would be needed? Yeah, well, I think the first thing the men will equate the big C with all the nasty things which uh, happen with cancer, death, suffering, pain, um, and, and that they can see from, from their wives with breast cancer and so many other kinds of cancer. But I always clarify the situation with them. The first thing is that prostate cancer is a different disease. Um, It will take about 10 years to actually kill someone with prostate cancer. So usually, if you are 675 and above, we don't even do the PSA test because uh, most men don't live past 76 Right in Malaysia, the the average lifespan is seventy six. So we're we're talking about something that won't happen within your lifespan. So I, they should chill out. Okay. Uh, number two, even if you have prostate cancer, most of it, if it's detected early, is curable. Is whether you want to cure it or not. And even if you've got advanced prostate cancer with modern treatments, it is very very likely will keep you alive for ten years, and the treatment is not as debilitating as chemotherapy for breast cancer and all that, that's horrible. You lose your hair. Prostate cancer treatment is much, much, much more gentle. Can you walk us through the treatment options? Well, if you've got a localised prostate cancer that's not spread, okay, that's called localised. And and then that can be usually treated with surgery where we use uh, about five, six different holes into your tummy and then we use a robot to help us take out the prostate in a more precise manner, okay? Uh, that's number one. The alternative to that is a radiotherapy where you will go uh, five times a week, 10 to 15 minutes each time for five weeks and have radiotherapy to the prostate gland. So your urologist will discuss with you the pros and cons of each one. Mm, all right. Um, robotic surgery, um, I guess, have become increasingly popular. Uh, just to put into perspective, um, Obviously, uh, it offers the advantage of being non-invasive, not an open surgery, but does it also improve survival? Uh, unfortunately, we, we actually have thousands and thousands of patients all over the world. It, it's not new technology, it's really old. Uh, and uh, there has been no difference in terms of oncological control, which means it doesn't cure you better. What it does, 
uh, is the blood loss is less. If you have an open operation, the average blood loss should be 1.5 liters. If you've got a, a robotic surgery, is 500 mils. So there is a significant difference in that. And, mm. in, and so basically, and also when you rejoin the bladder to the urethra, because the prostate is missing, uh, the robot allows you a tremendous range of movements of your hands, which are now robotic hands, so that the suturing is much more accurate. So that's the advantage and also the vision. Your vision is three to four times more improved uh, with the robot. Mm. But the problem is, is the cost. Actually, I saw a video recently mm. uh, showing um, a, a surgeon using the robot to fold an origami crane. Yes. And it made me realise the skill that the surgeon will need because now you're using your hands to manipulate another pair of hands. Yes. It's fascinating though. Yeah, but it's just that the range of movement of a normal human wrist is limited. Mm. A robot can spin around. Mm. And so we could do things that we would never be able to do. And it's good for older surgeons. Why? Because your hands will never shake. Because the <laughs> robot is absolutely still. I see. So it actually prolongs the, it gives longevity to the surgeon's career. Oh, wonderful. Um, but what about for advanced prostate cancer? Yeah, advanced prostate cancers, they will start off with hormonal treatment. Okay, there will be uh, injections where it will actually block the testosterone produced from your testicles as well as tablets that will actually block the testosterone that's being produced within the cancer cells themselves. And then there's the option of a chemotherapy, uh, which not often used, but it can be used. And then there is a newer treatments. Uh, there's newer treatments like immunotherapy with checkpoint inhibitors, drugs like Olaparib and all that, which are showing great promise and prolonging people's lives. The only problem is that it's expensive. It's about... 24000 a month. Ooh, okay. Ooh, yeah. That's right. why you have to buy a lot of insurance for that. And probably the argument for still getting it uh, detected and treated at early stages. Yes, it's a lot cheaper. <laughs> if you detect it late, not a problem. We still keep people alive for a decade or more. So just because you have a cancer diagnosis, it's not the end. Mm. I told you one in seven will die of prostate cancer. The rest won't. The heart disease, well, look at Mahathir. <laughs> Two bypass and he's pushing 98, right? <laughs> that's right. So he's that's another story. Mm. We can still keep you alive. <laughs> um, uh, listeners asking, uh, are the three monthly injections for early prostate cancer or is it the hormonal one? It's the hormonal one, usually for uh, advanced prostate cancer. Mm, all right. Um what about um, as they are undergoing treatment, Kelly? Mm. Because earlier your perspective was sort of like when they get the diagnosis mm. and sort of helping them to come to terms. But um, treatment itself, um, you know, you got to have that stamina as well. Mm. So what is good emotional and mental support to help them get through that process? I think during the treatments, uh, usually patients are accompanied by family members to fresh them, Instead of they come alone because coming to treatment also tiring and stress also. So it's good to have uh, family members to accompany you to journey these uh, cancer treatments. All right. Um, we'll go for another quick break and come back to continue this discussion about survivorship, you know, life after treatment. Uh, you know, it is so treatable. Um, it can, you can 
get so many more years of life. So what does life look like for men after they've been treated for prostate cancer? Dr. Peter Ng, consultant urologist, and Kelly Lai, registered counsellor from Subang Jaya Medical Centre in the studio with me. You can still get your questions in on WhatsApp. 018-789-8899 or call us at 03-7733-2900 or tweet us at BFM Radio. We'll be right back, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Xiao Ik. In the studio with me today, uh, consultant urologist Dr. Peter Ng and registered counsellor Kelly Lai, both from Subang Jaya Medical Centre. We are sort of journeying through a prostate cancer diagnosis, um, what that looks like and what kind of support would help men. Call us with your questions, 03-7733-2900. You can WhatsApp our U-Mobile number, 018-789-8899 or tweet us at BFM Radio. Interestingly, I'm going to pick up on something Dr. Peter said to me just before we came in with mics on um, that a lot of people are now watching YouTube and probably getting their um, information from there. Any misinformation regarding prostate cancer that you know you hear people coming to you with? That there is a lot of misinformation. That is the whole problem with society today. So we've got all sorts of new treatments and it's all for financial gain. For example, they've got this special, the uh, you know, Star Wars kind of knife, you know, proton knife and all these other things. And, and a lot of this stuff isn't really uh, kosher. I mean, there's no consensus on them. They're experimental and they charge you a hideous amount of money. And sometimes you've got to go overseas for that. So I think uh, you shouldn't be sucked in by that. You should always consult your local urological surgeon. All right. And um, a little bit on treatment before we go into, um, you know, survivorship. Mm. Uh, what are men's concerns when it comes to side effects from treatments? Well, the, the, the common fear is that they've got to go into, well, post, post-surgery, the, the side effects are basically impotence, erectile dysfunction, which will happen to a large number of patients, as well as uh, incontinence. If you had surgery done, you might be incontinent, but the incontinence rate is small, about 5%, and you have to wear a diaper or have additional surgery for that. So that is a significant issue there. Uh, The other issues are the uh, treatment with uh, hormone treatment. Okay, and hormone treatment will basically block your male hormone, and so therefore you will have a male menopause. And that, that's associated with, uh, with male menopause. Remember all the ladies, they've got uh, emotional ability when they've got menopause? Well, men are now going to face the same thing. Mm-hmm. Some men may feel depressed, uh, and some ir- many men are irritable. Uh, so that sort of pretty much covers what men need to expect yes. living uh, as a survivor. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, Kelly, do you? Um, how would you help men work through those are issues that again are about masculinity, right? Mm. Uh, about um, virility and your ability to have sexual functions. Uh, how would you help men deal with that? Okay. Uh, all these things is uh, very personal things. When men come to, they don't really. Uh, talk to me about that but all is from the partner la. they will share about all these issues that they are facing about this then uh, the, the wife will pass the message to the patients instead of me talking to the patient directly mm. so because they are very embarrassing to talk about this 
So the wife is the one who asks more questions than the has the patient itself. All right. Mm. And uh, so you deliver your advice through the to wife's the wife. as well. Yes. <laughs> Isn't this typical? <laughs> yeah. I think interesting to think the note uh, as in the sexual dimension for Asian men. You see, if you're talking about Western society, they're totally obsessed with sex, which is basically overrated. And 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 they think after the surgery or radiotherapy, I lose my ability to have sex, and that's like the end of the world. In my experience of more than about two, three decades of this, most Malaysian men aren't too fussed about it if they're pushing 70. Mm. They say, okay, my, my time in the sun is over and they're fa- fairly happy to accept it if it's mm. to pay for their cancer cure. Mm. We've got a couple of questions here. Um, PSA related for one of them. Mm. My husband, <clears throat> again coming through the wife. Yes. My husband, 51 years old, checked his PSA, it was 5.8. And MRI guided biopsy showed no malignancy. That was two years ago. And then his PSA went up to 7.86. But the doctor has said, just monitor for now. A year later, his level is down to 6.5. What could be the reason? And will it go back to what's normal? Okay, uh, there is a protocol and uh, uh, from the European Association of Urology. First of all, uh, there was a study by uh, Ming, published in the Journal of Urology, that showed that all the folks who had a PRATS 4 and 5, I don't know what PRATS level that patient had, is, is, a, is, a, is a grade of uh, likely cancer, they, when they had their repeat MRI within six months, about uh, 37% of them still had a uh, PIRATS 4 and 5 lesion, and this was rebiopsied, and in rebiopsy, 62% of them had cancer. One third of these same patients, the, the, that lesion disappeared. Another one third of the patients, instead of PIRATS 4, it went down to PIRATS 2, and of those who were biopsied, 15% came back cancer. So just to translate all that okay, into pure practical use is that you should have had a repeat MRI. Mm-hmm. And if the lesion is still there, you should have it rebiopsied. That is the current protocol. All right. And um, another question. My father had prostate cancer three years ago and did radiotherapy. Recently, his PSA was high. He did another PMSA PET scan yep. and found localized prostate cancer. What are the treatment options for him? What is the prognosis uh, like? Uh, is it uh, uh, considered a relapse of the cancer? He's yes. 74. Yes, it's a, it's a relapse of the cancer. Uh, but however, he's 74. Then you've got to think about whether you want to do anything about it because you remain, remember the average lifespan of a Malaysian man is about 75, 76. Even if you didn't do anything about it, he'll still reach 80, isn't it? Mm-hmm. But if he thinks it's like Mahathir and pushing 98, then he can have uh, surgery to remove the prostate gland. But the problem with surgery after radiotherapy is extremely difficult and you've got a lot of complications. That's why we prefer to do surgery first. And if that fails, then you have radiotherapy, not the other way around. Mm. But okay. because he had done radiotherapy the yes, first round. It's, it's much, much, much more difficult to do surgery later on. I see. That's why we always tell patients to have the surgery first. And if that fails, then we actually do the radiotherapy. Mm. So this is very much a conversation of what kind of quality of life her father would want and those considerations to be weighed. Yeah, he's 74. Now let's say if he's 74, he's got heart disease, diabetes, a couple other things. 
Oh, I, I, I think he didn't need, need to do anything. He may I just hope, have ADT. I hope he's healthy. Yeah, he can, he can have hormone treatment and it still lasts 10 years. Okay, so hormone treatment is yeah, an option. Absolutely. Nothing invasive. Nothing then. invasive. It doesn't want to. You to talk to the elderly gentleman and see what he wants. A lot of elderly gentlemen will just want to be left alone. Mm, all right. And uh, maybe sometimes we... Ah, she's uh, followed up. He just had a bypass. Ah, you know, bypass. So he's going to be like Mahathir, right? Live to 98. Then you might want to be more uh, aggressive if that's the case. <laughs> like Mahathir, Mahathir she right? He's the gold standard. <laughs> um, but I think a lot of the times we need to remember the person at the centre of all this and what do they want yes. as well. Yes. Yeah. Um, I would like to wrap up with some final thoughts from the both of you. First of all, Dr. Peter, um, I mean, we've talked about, you know, there are advancements in treating cancer now, even advanced forms of of, uh, prostate cancer, but um, why do you still want to push for early detection? Uh, and I'll get a final message from Kelly as well. Well, I think uh, very clearly shown from American data with the early detection with PSA, you can actually save lives, reduce the death rate. And my final message to the whole of mankind in Malaysia, buy a urinal. <laughs> Don't go to the toilet at night. <laughs> yes. Life-saving advice yes. right there. And Kelly, your final message? Okay, I would say that uh, because prostate cancer is something so, uh, not a good thing to share, so I would encourage the wife to really listen to your husbands and care about them more and be a very uh, good listener to your husband and be uh, sensitive to the things that are happening to him. So it can save life. All right. My message is, men, take care of yourselves. <laughs> uh, Dr. Peter Ng, consultant urologist, and Kelly Lai, registered counsellor from Subang Jaya Medical Centre. In the studio with me, we've been discussing prostate cancer. This has been Health & Living, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.